This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. A new book offers 100 solutions to combat climate change. Some might be familiar. Others are more unconventional. The book is called Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. And its goal is to reduce harmful emissions by the year 2050. Catherine Wilkinson is here from the group Project Drawdown. It collaborated with a Colorado-based nonprofit on some of its clean energy solutions. Catherine, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Andrea. The subtitle to Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming, is very emphatic. What makes this effort better than others? We, we laugh sometimes because it is a, a bit of a, um, a, a sort of bold, uh, almost brash subtitle. But the truth is that we could have said it was the, the most almost anything comprehensive plan uh, to reverse global warming. And that's because despite 40 years of really incredible science on the problem of climate change and what will happen uh, if it remains unchecked, no one had done kind of a, a comprehensive look at the solutions um, to actually actually going beyond slowing or stopping emissions to, in fact, reversing global warming. So previously, there had been piecemeal ideas, but nothing as big and as comprehensive. That's right. And there had been efforts even to to gather solutions. But what's quite unique about this work is that um, the, uh, the, the math that we did on the solutions lets you do an apples-to-apples comparison of them um, and rank them in terms of their potential impact between now and mid-century. And, and where does the name drawdown come from? Um, it's a great question. So as, the, uh, as we use the term, drawdown refers to the point in time at which greenhouse gases could, hopefully will, peak and then begin to decline um, on a year-to-year basis. So we wanted to put forward that goal of um, reaching a tipping point and, and returning to conditions that are most conducive to life on the planet. Um, you also hear the, the term drawdown used um, because you have solutions that avoid emissions um, through efficiency or re- replacing dirty technologies with something cleaner. Um, but you also have solutions that harness the power of photosynthesis to actually bring carbon back home to earth and, and sequester it in soil and, and biomass. It's a very hopeful book in that, you know, uh, some people feel we're doomed and, and this really offers, you know, hard proposals as to how to reverse it. And as we've said, um, there are a 100 solutions um, in the book, and the solutions are ranked in order of environmental impact. Some are things individuals can do. Others are bigger ideas. What ranks first? So the number one uh, is is deeply unsexy. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's refrigeration. It falls under uh, the materials sector, and this solution focuses on managing the chemical refrigerants that are used in our refrigerators, air conditioners, cold chains. Um, folks will probably remember the the 1987 Montreal Protocol phased out the use of ozone-destroying refrigerants, chlorofluorocarbons, but their primary replacement chemical, HFCs, um, sort of solved one problem uh, of of destroying the ozone layer, but they turn out to be a thousand or more times uh, powerful in terms of their global warming potential compared to carbon dioxide. So 
we we sort of shot ourselves in the foot um, at the same time. And um, the world came to an agreement last fall to amend the Montreal Protocol um, and to begin phasing out HFCs in the coming years. But even as we approach that phase out, there are lots of HFCs already in circulation and others that will come into circulation. So what we look at here is the impact of avoiding leaks um, and then properly disposing of refrigerants um, at the end of their life. And what's the substitute for HFCs? So there are a, a number of options coming onto the market. Um, we, we talk about a few of those in the text. There's not kind of a, a, a dominant one um, just yet, uh, but there are, are a number of things we can use, um, including propane, ammonia, and actually carbon dioxide itself. And just to be clear, this isn't something that individuals can do differently at home. Is that right? So, um, you know, think about how your AC units or refrigerators are being disposed of. Absolutely. But it will be most effective, um, you know, when we have uh, cities and and states um, taking on taking on this issue um, and, and addressing it at scale. How do you determine the ranking of all these ideas? So one of the core pieces of analysis looks at the potential emissions reductions for a given solution, let's say um, rooftop solar panels. And what we look at is if that solution is scaled vigorously but plausibly between now and 2050, how many gigatons of carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent, if it's another greenhouse gas that would be impacted, um, can be reduced um, and and so what we're able to do is is use that potential emissions reductions to rank the solutions one through eighty, um, and we also look at their financials. So the imp- incremental cost to implement a solution compared to uh, business as usual technology. So let's say um, purchasing an electric vehicle rather than a gasoline powered car. Um, And then we also look at the net operational cost or in most cases savings. So Mm. when you are operating that electric vehicle compared to a gasoline car, how much money is, is saved over that period of time as well. So you could rank them in different ways, but we use that potential emission reductions for their Mm. ranking. Another of your solutions, number four on the list, is changing to a more plant-based diet. That means eating less meat. And explain the impact of that on global warming. Absolutely. So this one, I sort of think of as doing the math on the impact of adopting Michael Pollan's um, guidance of eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Mm-hmm. Um, this this one I think of as being one of the most powerful solutions that sits in totally in an individual's control. Um, should they want to implement it, it's free. We can adopt it immediately. Um, what we see, quite in contrast to what Pollan said, is that there's a, a meat-centric Western diet that's broadly on the rise in the world today, and it contributes roughly a fifth of global emissions um, from raising livestock. And ruminants, um, cows, sheep, and their their cousins are uh, the most prolific offenders because they generate methane as they digest. So if cattle were their own nation, they would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases after China and the U.S. Wow. 
Yeah. So obviously there's there's emissions at stake here as well as damages to ecosystems from farm runoff, um, uh, health implications in terms of chronic disease and, and healthcare costs. But we know that, that dietary change is, is hard. It's personal and cultural. And so what we look at in this model is um, bringing about half of the world into a healthier diet. So um, in, in parts of the world like ours, people actually consume more protein than is, is recommended. Um, and, and as we all know, many more calories oftentimes. Um, but then also uh, in parts of the world where people are undernourished, where they're not getting enough protein or calories, bringing those up. So, so net-net, um, this would uh, impact about 66 gigatons of reduced emissions by mm. 2050. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're talking about a book that offers 100 ways to reverse global warming. They're ranked in order of importance. Uh, Catherine Wilkinson is a senior writer at Project Drawdown. She's part of the team that produced the book Drawdown, subtitled The Most Comprehensive Plan Ever Proposed to Reverse Global Warming. And um, along with this food theme, number three is reducing food waste. You say a third of the food grown in the world doesn't make it from farms to the dinner table. What's the solution there? So this is a, another one that I think surprises folks to see to see food waste coming in at, at number three. Um, and it, it clocks in just ahead of plant-rich diets at about 70 gigatons um, mm. of emissions potential by, by 2050. Um, yeah, so as you said, a, a third of food around the world that we produce doesn't get consumed. It's about 40% in the U.S. Um, the food waste happens in both high-income and low-income countries, but the drivers are are different. So where income is low and infrastructure is weak, you often have food waste happening earlier in the supply chain. So food rots on farms for lack of labor or, or markets, um, or it spoils during storage and distribution. But in regions of, of higher income like ours, we tend to waste by choice. So the food waste is is happening towards the other end of the supply chain. Retailers and consumers are picky, um, or we overbuy, we reject bruised apples, we forget about leftover lasagna in the back of the fridge, Mm -hmm. restaurants serve way too much, um, etc. And um, so there's sort of a, a hierarchy of practices that can address food waste. Obviously, you want to preempt it before it happens, if at all possible, because at every stage of the journey, um, you've got uh, resources being input um, and, and greenhouse gases being produced. But um, at the very least, you want to reallocate unwanted food for consumption or reuse in some way. Um, and what we also look at under this solution is the impact of avoiding deforestation for additional farmland to make more food that we don't eat, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and also methane from decomposing organic matter. So there's a, a lot of things at work here. Um, we've seen some countries like France and Italy um, put into place policies that simply say grocery stores cannot throw food away, um, and that, that can have a big impact um, on food waste. Does this book mean you're really hopeful that humans can reverse global warming? We certainly, I I think, have a a, a kind of core message of possibility in this book. Um, 
we didn't invent this plan. Uh, so Project Drawdown really went out to to gather and codify the collective wisdom of humanity. Um, and the really wonderful thing that we found is that human beings have been creating a plan to get to Drawdown without realizing that that's what we were doing. We, we have the toolbox we need. We have the technologies and the practices um, they are all of the solutions that we model are in place, proven, scaling. We have great data and research about them. So momentum is already working in our favor. Um, and I think what you also see in this book is that there is agency at every level, from households to factory floors to farms to halls of power. But Traditionally, I think we've thought about most of that agency, um, you know, sitting with, uh, with decision makers. And I think we'll see more and more people and institutions stepping into the agency that we describe in this book. Um, hmm. It's not, I think, as so much of the environmental movement uh, has been about finger-wagging. Um, it really is an invitation to, to step into the power that we all have to contribute to reversing, uh, to reversing global warming. And um, some of the solutions um, that you suggest are already underway. We've talked about some of them. Number six, for example, is educating girls. That's not something usually looked upon in terms of climate change. How is that an environmental benefit? So there's a section in the book um, on women and girls. There are just three solutions that fall under it, and they are all focused on advancing women's rights and opportunities and well-being, and then the positive ripple effects that come out of advancing those rights um, for society and the planet. And in the case of education, um, if you if you pick up the book, you'll see a really beautiful photograph of a young woman in school in Kenya. Um, but about 130 million girls are not in school today, and that's especially a challenge in secondary classrooms. Um, of course, this is an issue because education is an intrinsic right and, and lays a really important foundation for healthy um, and, and vibrant lives. But as it turns out, more years of education um, – mean that women have fewer and healthier children um, by choice. They more actively manage their, their reproductive health. So if you look at a woman who has no years of schooling compared to 12 years of schooling, you may have a difference of four to five children per mm -hmm. woman. Um, and I think it's important to be really clear here that in the poorest countries in the world, which um, are, are the places where girls are, are having the hardest time getting educated, per capita greenhouse gas emissions are, are low. Mm -hmm. They are a fraction of those in the U.S. and the places most responsible for causing climate change and, and with the most work to do. But even so, changes in fertility rates would mean fewer feet making their carbon footprints on the planet um, by the time we reach, reach mid-century. Um, so that's what we've looked at here. Um, and another really interesting piece of, of educating girls is that it's really important for shoring up resilience to the negative impacts of climate change, right? The impacts we know have already started and will be coming even as we try to address um, the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So education turns out to be the single most important factor for reduced vulnerability for girls and women in natural disasters. Catherine, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. 
Catherine Wilkinson is a senior writer at Project Drawdown. She's part of the team that produced the book Drawdown, which the authors say offers the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. We've been talking about some of the solutions proposed in the book. Immigration authorities in Denver just deported a mother of three who'd come to the U.S. as a child herself. The Denver Post reports Christina Rodriguez-Sarganaga actually got her deportation order a few years ago, but had been able to stay until she showed up for a check-in with immigration officers last week. Cases like hers have put pressure on city leaders who are wrestling with whether to embrace the label sanctuary city. It may reassure undocumented immigrants, but President Trump has threatened to cut federal funding to cities that shield immigrants. CPR's Allison Sherry reports on how that struggle is playing out in Denver. Immigrant rights groups called on city leaders recently to stand up for their community. A Denver resident, Lorena, was there. We aren't using her last name because she is undocumented. She says fear of deportation has affected her seven-year-old son the most. Lorena says her son asks her what will happen if she is deported. ICE officials say deportations have more than doubled so far this year compared to last. Lorena says she and her friends have changed habits and are living more carefully. And they are not alone. At least nine people have dropped domestic violence charges in Denver over deportation fears in the last few months. And Denver Human Services Chief Don Mares says it seems more people are declining help in general, reluctant to give their names to the local government. If I had to sum it all up in one word, it is nervous. And Denver City Councilman Paul Lopez says all of this is terrible for the city as a whole. This fear does have some ramifications that are really concerning, and that is less and less people are calling the police, especially if you are undocumented or are an immigrant. And that's probably the most paramount concern. Lopez wants Denver to go farther, explicitly limiting police and city officials from working with ICE except in cases of serious violent crimes. In the interest of public safety, in the interest of making sure that folks understand that the Denver police are not immigration officials, that the Denver Fire Department and their badge that they have on their sleeve is not ICE, right? It's important for folks to see that there is a difference. Denver, like dozens of other cities nationally, has taken some steps to make it harder for ICE to deport people who are in the city's criminal justice system. They recently shortened jail sentences for lower-level crimes to keep more immigrants from coming to the attention of ICE. They are also giving people coming to the courthouse a private place to wait if they are afraid of encountering federal agents there. And they started a plea-by-mail program that allows people with traffic offenses avoid the courthouse altogether. So the city of Denver's been working uh, on several different fronts to try to reassure our immigrant community that we have their backs. That's Kristen Bronson, Denver's city attorney, who has worked on the policy changes for Mayor Hancock. She says these changes should help undocumented residents feel more protected, but she doesn't like the term sanctuary city. She calls it a political label and worries it gives people a false sense of security. Because there's only so much that we as a municipality can do um, uh, to help them. And otherwise, the federal government has the right to pursue immigration enforcement, and we're not going to interfere with that. This is not at all satisfactory for Hans Meyer, an immigrant rights lawyer based in Denver. 
he thinks city officials should be actively resisting efforts to deport its citizens. We're pushing a sanctuary policy for Denver, right, that is more comprehensive, that's set into municipal code, and that contains clear delineations that extract sort of all aspects of local government. If they're not willing to stand up for this policy at this time in history, maybe we need to find people with the guts to do so. On the other side, groups that advocate for less immigration say it doesn't matter if Denver says it's not a sanctuary city, it's enacting sanctuary policies. You know, if it waddles like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck no matter what you call it. That's Ira Melman at the Federation for American Immigration Reform. The group has been tracking the sanctuary movement across the country. Melman says police departments have the right to help ICE when people are in trouble with the criminal justice system. But the Denver police could simply make it clear through public statements, through public service announcements, that nobody is going to question you about your immigration status if you're a victim of domestic violence or you're a victim of an armed robbery, and there is no reason for you to fear coming forward. El primero era una respuesta de una carta de alcalde Hancock y los otros representantes de la ciudad de Denver. At a press conference recently, immigrants called Mayor Hancock to action. The issue was starting to heat up with the summer as advocates continued to urge city officials to take a more aggressive stance against ICE. The Denver City Council may take up additional proposals as soon as next month to push the mayor to go farther than he already has. Denver's elected leaders are in a tough spot trying to walk the line between an agitated immigrant community and federal immigration law. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Have you ever wondered what your dog or cat is thinking? How about the feelings of the animals that end up on your dinner plate? A growing body of research shows that animals have rich inner lives. University of Colorado bioethicist Jessica Pierce and animal behaviorist Mark Beckoff explore those findings in their new book. It's called The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age. Well, we have them on the line right now from Boulder. Jessica, Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Um, Mark, you both argue in the book that human treatment of animals doesn't reflect the science and what we know about animals' inner lives. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, in the book we talk about what we call the knowledge translation gap. And what we mean is that for decades we've known that non-human animals, animals are sentient conscious beings. So we need to weave in what we know about their cognitive and emotional lives into how we treat them. And the best example, of course, of how this isn't done is that under the Federal Welfare Act in the United States, laboratory rats and mice are not considered to be animals. And there's a specific clause in the act that says we're redefining the word animal to exclude lab rats and mice, Mm. which is just singularly absurd. Try explaining that to a four-year-old. Rats are often, as you said, used for research, and and they are considered sort of lesser than other animals. And yet they also display some, um, for lack of a better term, very human behavior. Explain that. Well, they love to be tickled, they laugh, and they love to play. And we know that they suffer. So... um, that it's you know it's a great example of this knowledge translation gap where we're not using what we know on behalf of other animals. And what do you mean by um, you know that they suffer? Oh, I mean there's 
many studies that show that rats and you know numerous other animals feel pain, long and enduring pain. And in fact, it's so absurd that, or paradoxical that a lot of research done on pain to learn more about pain in humans is done on non-human animals. And if non-human animals didn't feel pain, why would we study them? Any other examples of animals and uh, the human qualities, I guess, that they display? Oh, grief, embarrassment, jealousy, guilt. Mm-hmm. And and I often caution that we shouldn't call them human qualities. Right. Um, in the sense that the animals are beings in and of themselves, and we're not the template against which we should compare other animals. You write about the effects of captivity on animals. What's an example of that? Well, animals in zoos, the stereotype behavior, the pacing back and forth, the boredom, animals on feedlots suffering immeasurably, um, there's there's really countless examples of the effects of conf- uh, captivity and the lack and the loss of freedom for these animal beings. Jessica, you differentiate between animal welfare and animal well-being. Uh, could you put a finer point on this? What we're trying to do in the book is just suggest that I, I, I think what happens when people hear the word welfare is they think, oh, we're, we're doing what we can to take care of animals and uh, sort of doing our, our moral duty, as it were. And uh, a lot of what passes as welfare is, is really quite awful for the, for the animals. Um, just to give an example, um, you know, one of the, the things that we talk about in the book is um, slaughterhouse and slaughterhouse design. And um, an example of a welfare improvement would be um, you know, more effective um, use of the stun gun. So you have, you know, fewer examples of animals who are not killed immediately and who are ending up, um, you know, on the, the cutting line still alive. And, you know, that may be better than, than nothing, but it's still not good for animals. It's not really um, giving them a good life. And uh, another another example would be... Uh, elephants in zoos. So a welfare improvement might be giving them three acres rather than one acre. But it's still not a good life for the elephants in that in that cage. Um, and by well-being, we just mean to suggest that there is a lot more that we can be doing to take, to put the animal's interests first, essentially above, above we, we tend to put human interests above animal interests pretty much all the time. Um, and, you know, with, with elephants in zoos, well, one suggestion would be maybe there are certain animals who are just not suited to captivity, hmm. elephants being, being one of those, because they really can't have um, well-being mm-hmm. in, in that environment. And um, another thing that we, we try to do with the idea of well-being is, is to suggest that, that, that individual animals matter. So it isn't just kind of the the welfare of the group as a whole um, or, you know, how protective the group is as a whole, but what's happening to each individual animal and, and that that really matters. And each individual has different needs, interests, preferences, and so forth, and we really need to pay attention to those if we're trying to do the best we can for the animals um, in in our care. 
You mentioned the meat production industry. Um, the treatment of animals there has gotten a lot of attention in recent years, especially because of the work of Colorado State University animal science professor Temple Grandin. Um, she's advocated for improvements in conditions and treatment of animals by the industry. And how does her work compare to yours on changes needed in that arena? So I I think that um, what... Temple Grandin has tried to do is to make um, the systems of animal production less cruel. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important goal. But I think that what what Mark and I are suggesting is that maybe we need to look at the cruel systems themselves um, so that, you know, one, one... from a Temple Grandin point of view, you might say, well, we can honor and respect animals by making slaughterhouses uh, less horrible for the animals in them. And I guess our perspective is that that's kind of an odd way to honor and respect animals. Mm-hmm. If you really want to honor and respect animals, let's talk about um, different kinds of diet plans, meal plans. So Um, moving away from a meat-based diet. Moving away Mm -hmm. from a meat-based diet, moving away from this intensive um, farm system that makes animals into these units of production um, that really loses sight of the individual animal and what that individual animal is is going through. And... um, Mark, how certain are you that science can ever really understand what animals want and need? Oh, I'm totally um, convinced, if you will, that we can. I don't like to use the word total because I really can't understand totally what a human being, even one to whom I'm close, wants and needs all the time. But the science is there. The The scientific data are there that other animals have very rich rich and deep emotional lives. And like I said before, we've known this for decades. So people who go, well, these rats or or cows on a slaughterhouse or elephants in a zoo or in a circus are acting, quote, as if they're happy or as if they're sad, cuts both ways. And the example I always use is one when I was talking with somebody who favors keeping animals in cages and zoos. And I said, that elephant looks very unhappy. And he said to me, oh, you're being anthropomorphic. She's happy. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, well, why aren't you being anthropomorphic? And it got really silent. And so putting debates about anthropomorphism aside, I think they're useless because we only have one language that we can really talk, whatever human language it is, is it cuts both ways. So... All you have to do, and I tell people, is you live with a cat or a dog or a rat or a bird, just study them. And these other animals who are part of the animal industrial complex have the same array of emotions as our companion animals at home. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're speaking with Coloradans Jessica Pierce and Mark Beckoff about their new book called The Animal's Agenda. Science shows there's a lot more to animals and their feelings that many people don't know. And um, Jessica, um, 
So much of human behavior toward animals has been ingrained in people for many, many years. And if you were to change just a few things about how society treats animals off the bat, what would you do right away? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I I might, this is sort of my area of passion is companion animals. So I might say, you know, begin at home. Um, Pay attention to your dog, your cat, your guinea pig, whatever it is that that you happen to to have living with you in your home. And, you know, I think, um, you know, most people who have companion animals or pets really want to do the best they can for them. But it's it's hard to know what that is. And I think it's a good way to understand just how complex it is to try to understand um, what animals want and need and also um, how we can do it. And as Mark suggested, to, to observe, um, pay attention. Um, I have, and this is to give a very specific example, I have an elderly dog um, and I actually write down how she's doing from day to day because um, that really helps me gauge how she's feeling um, mm. and take kind of take a measure of how she's doing from one day to the next without. And there's a lot of, of our own subjective feelings that get um, sort of mixed in with how we think our animals are doing and whether I'm having a bad day <laughs> is mm-hmm. going to sort of influence um, how I see Maya's day going. Um, so, so keep being um, objective about it. And in a sort of technical terms, you could say yeah, keeping an ethogram or a record of, of the behaviors that your animal engages in and knowing what your animal likes and doesn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who has more than one dog um, has a good sense of the individuality of animals. Right. Um, you know how different they are. I have one dog who loves to play frisbee. I have another. <laughs> my other dog has no interest in it whatsoever. They have different things that they enjoy doing. It's, it actually uh, makes it challenging to to care for them because, you know, what is the walk about? You know, for Maya, the walk is about sniffing and hunting stuff in the grass and um for bella it's about frisbee so <laughs> the sort walk of, gets a little chaotic the, the um, same thing as that parents deal with all the time exactly exactly <laughs> so i think just learning i mean it's nice to think that we can just um just by being with our animals in our home know what they want and need but i think reading books about the natural history of um, whichever animal it is that you're living with is really helpful. Um, the more books I read about dog behavior, the more I realize how little I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and another example from close to my home is my daughter used to have rats as pets. And um, reading books about rats is really helpful because I don't know very much about rats without, you know, having done this, this research and just getting to know what it is that they like and need. Do they like to be alone or do they like to have companions? You know, they like, they like to have companions, um, keeping them busy and finding interesting things to, to make their life. I mean, life in a cage can be quite boring. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, we're talking with Mark earlier about how do you know animals can suffer and they don't just suffer physical pain. I mean, there's a lot of evidence from, um, unfortunately, from studies into animals, um, laboratory animal research on emotional suffering in animals, mm-hmm. 
We know about anxiety and depression from studies on rats and mice. So we know that these animals have these experiences, and it's true in our home, too. A pet rat can <coughs> be bored and depressed. And so um, I think just really getting, getting to, to know your individual and what that individual wants and needs and what you can do to make his or her life better. And Mark, how would you change the lives of animals on farms specifically? Well, I think it would depend on what kind of farm. So putting factory farms aside, because they're not really farms. I mean, real farmers just bristle when they hear about factory farms. You could enrich their lives. You can challenge them, like Jessica said. Um, We could really study them as individuals. I mean, that's really one of the bottom line messages of replacing animal welfare with the science of animal well-being is that the life of each and every individual matters and each and every individual has their own unique personality. So I always say to people, if you want a good question, would you do it to a dog? And sometimes they'll say, what do you mean? And I'll say, well, would you let a dog be treated in the way in which we allow actively or passively other animals to be treated. And that gets the discussion going because farmed animals, um, zooed animals, animals in zoos, are no less sentient or feeling than our companion dogs or cats or rats. Mm. So I would encourage people, once again, as an ethologist, someone who studies animal behavior, watch your animal. Um, I'm working on a book on dogs, and the bottom line is take them into your life and study them. I mean, I don't mean going into a classroom and taking an exam. I mean, if you're going to bring a dog into your home, learn about dog behavior. Learn about cow behavior. I think your examples in the beginning, you know, about mice and rats, are really excellent in terms of learning what they want and need. And they show us constantly what they want and need. And the other thing I would always say when people say, well, I'm giving them a better life, is that a better life is not necessarily a good life. Mm-hmm. I've had zoo people tell me that giving elephants three or four or five acres is really a feel-good scam. Right. It, it, they're not happier in a three-acre enclosure than a one-acre enclosure. So the bottom line for me is really focusing on the individual animal with whom you're interacting and perhaps sometimes reflecting back to what we know about dogs and cats and other companion animals. Jessica, a, a big question, and we have to wrap up on this. Um, uh, you know, again, our relationship with animals is pretty ingrained in our culture. What's a realistic vision for change and for the future? I think learning to... The reason we focus on um, freedom in the book is I think one thing that we can do for animals is give them more freedom to be themselves and live their own lives. We can give them a greater measure of control and choice and self-determination in all of the venues. Um, Jessica, we we have to wrap up. I'm sorry. Okay. Thanks to both of you very much. Thank Thank you. you. University of Colorado bioethicist Jessica Pierce and animal behaviorist Mark Beckoff write about the well-being and rich inner lives of animals. Their new book is The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age. We've posted an excerpt at CPRnews.org.
This is the sound of a new profession for Jordan Temkin of Fort Collins. That is not a dental drill. It's a drone racing through an outdoor obstacle course on a windy day until it touches down. Temkin became one of the first drone racers to collect a salary, train, and travel to competitions when he won the inaugural Drone Racing League Championship. The new season started last week and is broadcast on ESPN. Temkin spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel in February about racing drones and how they make him feel like Superman. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What do the drones you fly look like? You have one in front of us here. Can you describe what it looks like? Sure. It's uh, made of four propellers and a, and a couple motors. You know, it's pretty simple electronically. Uh, we like them because there's no mechanical moving objects like a helicopter. It's just all electronics and, you know, you just solder everything up and it flies. It's built for speed, I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. What, what does a drone race course look like? I mean, how does that work? Um, they can get pretty elaborate, you know, because we can now fly in the three dimensions. Yeah. You can really just do anything you want. You can just fly. And this thing is the size of basically about a hand, essentially, maybe a little bit bigger. It's not that large. No, no. This one's a small, you know, pocket-sized. We call it three-inch. Uh, it's based on the propeller size. What we race generally is five-inch. It's slightly larger. You know, it's about a foot by a foot. And so you use goggles, video mm-hmm. goggles. And so essentially that puts you in the driver's seat, essentially, of this drone. Describe that feeling. Um, it's It's absolutely amazing. So... Yeah, we have a little, it's a wireless security camera out front. You know, it's low-tech, cheap. And we wear these uh, goggles that just feed that video right back to us. So it's it's just like you're sitting inside the drone. The video from the Drone Racing League Championship on ESPN, it's not online, uh, but there's a similar event uh, in the UK called iSeries Drone Racing. It's indoors with neon lights on the obstacles, and the drones have lights on them. Luke's still out in front. Yeah, Luke's got a comfortable lead, followed by Brett, and then Leo's finishing up in third. Oh, oh Brett's down. Brett's, Brett's down. hit the tunnel. That's a big crash. He is not going to be happy about that. You can see from his reaction, he is not happy. So he's in third. They're speaking about racers Luke Bannister, Brett Collins, and Leo Whitfield. It's a very fast-paced thing with the announcers trying to keep up, and you've got four video screens that you're looking at. Is it like that in, in at these actual races that you do? Yeah, I mean, when you're in the pilot seat, though, you have the goggles on, so you're all focused in on being in the drone. You know, so it's, it's up to us to see the four screens exactly. and to, to hear the, the and announcers. Luke Bannister, I've actually raced him before, and he is one of the fastest out there. Yeah, he's one of the best. Oh, yeah. Is, is, there, a, is there a small camaraderie between you all? It must not be a huge number of people in this. No, no. I mean, in terms of racers, there's thousands, right? But in terms of the professional top level, there's, you know, maybe half a hundred, if that. So... You know, it's it's a very small community. Everyone knows each other. We've raced each other all around the world, and that's a huge part of it for me, too, is I get to travel, meet all sorts of cool people, and just geek out. And and now you have a sponsor, I'm assuming. You can do this as, as, a, as a living. Yeah, exactly. It's I mean, I can just dedicate all my time to my passion. What does it uh, feel like for you as the racer that people are watching your videos intently and seeing how you turn and how you fly and how do you go through these obstacles? You know, it's it's kind of odd for me to have it out in the public like that because I've never experienced that before. As a skier, you know, I've always done things for myself. I do it because I love it. And, I mean, it still holds true, right? I still fly drones and race drones because I love to do so. 
but the more people we can show, the more people that we can get involved, the better. And, and you're talking about how you don't – it's kind of weird having people see this. Mm-hmm. I, I understand you will sometimes drive out to beautiful places around Colorado or, or in the southwest and, and just fly the drone. Mm-hmm. What's that like? Do you put on the goggles as well when you do that? Yeah, yeah. So we call that freestyle flying. Okay. And it's – you know, when we're put in these machines, we can fulfill that dream that everyone has of I want to be Superman and I want to fly through the air. So now that we have this ability that – didn't exist before um we just love going anywhere and everywhere and just showing the world what we can do it's kind of like uh like skating or you know those kind of extreme sports where you you go to a cool place and you make a video and say hey guys check out what i did it's the same idea so essentially you're you're basically being the base jumper but not mm-hmm. actually having to put yourself in danger exactly i lose a couple hundred bucks at the worst <laughs> What does it mean to be a professional drone racer? Is that something that will continue, do you think? Is this kind of a, a test uh, for the new sport? Yeah, it's just the beginning, really. It's It only started, let's say, two years ago, and it's really, really just ramping up so quickly. And, um, yeah, it's it's just an incredible sport that hopefully more people get involved so it can get bigger and bigger. What's the community like in Fort Collins of, of drone racers? Is there a community up in Fort Collins? Yeah, there's absolutely a huge community. There's um, people all over the state, everywhere, racing every weekend. How fast do these drones go? Is it, uh, I mean, is it, tell me the speed. So this little one I have here yeah. um, goes, let's say, 45. Uh, my racing drones that I, I race at other events, uh, we've clocked at over 100 miles an hour. Now is the desire to build drones that go faster and faster. Can they go faster and faster? Is there a point where well, that's it? That's the speed that you're going to get with this, this drone. Yeah, once you get to about 115, it's really hard to break that barrier just because aerodynamics get involved. But it's, you know, a part of it is they're so light, they can go in one direction, turn around 180, and hairpin turn in a split second. You know, it's, there's, the acceleration is so little because there's little inertia. So they can just turn around and split. It's like watching a hummingbird. Yeah. And and when you hit the, you know, an obstacle, does the thing shatter? Are you out or can you, you know, recover and, and fly again? Let's say like a race car who loses a tire. Uh, if you're lucky, you can recover. Mostly it's the plastic propellers blow up on you. But they're they're built out of carbon fiber. We're, they're designed to take a hit. And, and finally, uh, since you started collecting a salary last mm-hmm. month, it's a one-year contract. Correct. If you don't win again this year, is it back to, to odd jobs or, or racing drones on the side or what's what's the future? Um, for me, you know, I've always – I used to freelance – do freelance photography and stuff. So I've always kind of just followed my passion in terms of making money. So, you know, I'm still going to drone race. I'm going to do everything I can to keep doing this for the rest of my life. What do you think is the future of this sport? Um, well, DRL, uh, Drone Racing League on ESPN, I think is a step to the future. You know, it's showing the masses – there's this cool new sport out there. Check it out. Um, you know, get involved. So that's one step. And I really do think it can one day be something like uh, F1 racing or NASCAR, right, where you tune in on some weekend just to watch the racing. Jordan, thanks for being here. All right. Thanks for having me.
Jordan Temkin of Fort Collins is the reigning drone racing league champion. The new season started last week on ESPN, and the Drone Racing League recently announced it raised more than $20 million, making it more likely the startup will stick around. Temkin talked with CPR's Nathan Heffel in February. See what drone racing looks like from the pilot's point of view at cprnews.org. That's our show for today. Our theme music was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Thanks to Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, Stephanie Wolf, Rachel Estabrook, Shauna Lewis, and Anthony Cotton. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis.